right, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Let's start this morning uh, with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the way that you um, give us this day, the, the day of rest, the Lord's day, um, each week, um, that we can gather together in your presence as those who are called by your name um, as you renew your covenant again with us. Father, we pray this morning that as we prepare for our worship by studying together again the words and writings of John Calvin, that you would be pleased to be with us by your spirit, that you would guide us even as we consider these things, that you would lead us into truth. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this uh, fall and winter, um, we are going through the institutes of John Calvin um, um, piece by piece, section by section, really trying to summarize and well, not really summarize, but actually just kind of condense and actually give you Calvin's words themselves. I'm doing my best to stay out of the way and give you as much unadulterated Calvin um, as we can handle um, in the time we have together. Um, so just to, by way of review, remember that um, in the Institutes, Calvin begins uh, with these words. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. So for Calvin, always, um, the goal um, was to have knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And that these um, two kinds of knowledge, these two objects of knowledge, um, were related to one another. They were even um, dependent upon one another. Um, Calvin goes on as he works through his argument in the opening chapters of the Institutes to to argue that though God has revealed himself um, perfectly in his creation, uh, man by his sin and his rebellion against God has obscured the knowledge of God that has been given to him. He says, and in creation, uh, men do not therefore apprehend or know God as he offers himself, but imagine him as they have fashioned him in their own presumption. Um, this for Calvin was one of the fundamental realities of sin, that we have misimagined God, that we've allowed God uh, to be conformed to our own desires, our own inclinations, um, rather than as he actually is in and of himself. Um, this, according to Calvin, is the definition of idolatry, um, that, that we have covered up um, the true knowledge of God that he has given. Um, but the good news is that God has given us a way to see him rightly, a way to see him clearly. And for Calvin, this begins not with creation, but rather with what we call special revelation, with the scriptures themselves. Um, Calvin compares the, the role of scriptures to that of an, an old man with weak vision. Um, when he puts on spectacles, is now able to see clearly. Um, so scripture gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. So God, as he is truly uh, revealed, um, can only be seen most clearly and first in the scriptures, in special revelation. And of course, the scriptures all point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it is only in Christ, as he's revealed in the scriptures, that we can see the true nature of who God is. Um, then, once we have those spectacles on, we can go back and see creation in a new way. Um, now we can see creation as a place that is actually um, not uh, a place where we imagine God after our own desires, but a place where the works of God are open and manifest in this most beautiful theater. Um, Calvin become, or, I'm sorry, creation becomes a theater of who God is, a place for him to display his attributes. It is a place where we should not be ashamed to take pious delight 
in the creation that God has given us and in all created things that he has given us uh, according to his law. Um, we also, several weeks ago, not looked only at uh, creation, but moved into providence. Um, Calvin argues that it is not enough to apprehend God as he has shown himself in the created world. We must push beyond that, not only know him as creator, but also as preserver and governor, that he is the one who watches over all things. Um, and when we know God um, is the one who sustains, nourishes, and cares for everything that he has made, um, even to the last sparrow, even to the last, we might say, hair on our heads, um, then we'll be set free from anxiety. We'll be set free from fear. Um, Calvin argues that in a world where God is not sovereign, where he does not ordain all things, we are left um, to the whims of chance and fate. And that, according to Calvin, is a terrible place to be. It is terrible um, to be uh, at, the, at the mercy of, uh, of fate. Um, because there's nothing trustworthy there. There's nothing that you can um, have hope for. But when you believe that God is sovereign over all things, that he has ordained every single thing that happens in the world, then we will be relieved and set free, not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing on him before, but from every care. For just, or I'm sorry, for as he justly dreads fortune, so he fearly dares commit himself to God. Um, Fortune is something that we cannot put our trust in. We must dread and fear. But a God who is sovereign, who is good, who ordains all things, he is one that we can fearlessly dare to commit ourselves to, um, body and soul. Um, Calvin had closed that section with this wonderful quote. He says that ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries because we know that life is fundamentally out of our control. And if there is no one that is overseeing it, if there is no one who is ordaining all things, then we are just at the mercy of chance. But the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of God's providence, because then we can be confident that our Heavenly Father is watching over us and caring for us in every way. Uh, last week, we moved into the section in, in book two um, that, that talks about um, the reality of sin. Calvin is now going to, now that he's sort of worked through knowledge um, as an initial concept, the doctrines of creation and providence. Um, he's now going to talk more deeply about sin and the way that sin enslaves us and the way that God and, and the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, um, sets us free from the curse of sin. Um, so last week we talked about original sin. Um, Calvin holds to this, um, uh, this uh, he didn't invent it, this is an ancient Christian doctrine the idea that in Adam all sinned. It wasn't only Adam that sinned, but all who were under Adam's authority, under his federal headship, sinned with him. Um, uh, Calvin entangled and immersed his offspring in his same miseries. Um, this is the inherited corruption, Calvin says, which the church fathers, um, so not just Calvin didn't come up with this term, it was, came from the, the early church, with the church fathers termed original sin meaning by the word sin, the deprivation of a nature previously good and pure. Therefore, all of us who have descended from impure seed are born infected with the contagion of sin. In fact, before we saw the light of this life, we were soiled and spotted in God's sight. Um, Calvin goes on to say that, that this original sin uh, makes us liable to God's wrath and judgment, but it also brings forth iniquity in ourselves. So we are guilty not only of Adam's sin, but also of our actual sin that proceeds from that sin nature. So we add 
um, to the judgment that God rightly brings against us. Uh, these are the works of the flesh um, um, that, that uh, come out of us. Um, Calvin says that um, even infants themselves, while they carry their condemnation along with them from the mother's womb, are guilty not of another's fault, but of their own. Um, they, um, the iniquity that they carry in their hearts has not yet been brought forth fully, but it will, we know that. And also, um, Calvin goes on to say that this perversity, this, this rottenness inside of us, uh, never ceases in us, but continues to bear new fruits. And so we actually increase in our sin the longer that we live. Um, this is a reality um, of human nature uh, in the fall. Um, and the takeaway for Calvin, this is really important, that, that for Calvin, this isn't just an opportunity to beat up on humanity and to talk about how um, depraved we are. That is true. But for Calvin, this idea of our depravity, of our fallenness, our inability to choose good in and of ourselves is directly related um, to how salvation comes to us. Um, logically, um, if uh, we cannot save ourselves, then who must save us? God. God must do the saving. And this is where we get the whole doctrine of election. Calvin will unpack that later in the Institutes in more detail, but the, the seed of it is laid here. Um, Calvin is arguing uh, free will is in, in some uh, libertine kind of way where we can either choose God or not choose God, um, is crazy because it doesn't take our sin seriously enough. It doesn't take our fallen nature with the soberness that it must. Um, in our fallenness, we cannot choose God uh, because our, our will is actually corrupted. And so if we're to be saved, then the whole of salvation comes from God. The whole of salvation comes from God. In some ways, that is a just a you know what six-word, seven-word summary of all of Calvin's uh, doctrine uh, and theology. The whole of salvation comes from God. There's not any of it that comes from us. Um, so that brings us up to everything we've covered so far. We're about to jump into new material, but before I do that, any questions about the brief summary we've just given? All right, let's jump into new stuff. So today we're really just going to look at one chapter um, in uh, Calvin's work, but it's an important one. And the, the topic is the law of God. How are we to view the law of God? This is, of course, uh, you may know, a debated question within the church. Um, and it was a debated question at the time of the Reformation, particularly, actually, among the Protestant reformers. Um, there were some, um, some radical Anabaptists at the time, who wanted to basically just throw the law out, to say we've been set free completely by the law, uh, meaning the Old Testament law. And, and they're... they're there's no reason even to pay attention to it at all, that Jesus has abolished all of that um, and set us free from it. Uh, there were others, um, Lutheran brothers and sisters that followed the teachings of Martin Luther, who did not go that far, but had a pretty negative, largely negative view of the law, that the law was always set against the gospel in, in a kind of um, uh, antithesis um, sort of way. Um, so the, the role of the law, primarily or even exclusively, was merely to convict human beings of their sin. And that was where the law told that you were sinful, and then the gospel came and told you that you were forgiven. And after that, the law really didn't have much use or, or role in your life. Uh, but Calvin, as we'll see, wanted to argue for a more expansive view of the law um, in a positive way for the Christian believer. And that was one of the ways that he really actually differentiated himself from other uh, movements within uh, the Protestant world, even in the 16th century, when he wrote these words. 
Um, and we'll, we'll see that as we go. So first, Calvin, uh, book, book 2, chapter 7. Um, he begins to deal with the law in the context of um, the Old Covenant. He says, The law was given not to restrain the folk of the Old Covenant under itself, but to foster hope of salvation in Christ until his coming. This is something that's really important for Calvin all throughout, is that the law was never just given to the Old Testament people of God um, to be a, a sort of temporary thing that they were under, but it was always meant to point uh, forward to Jesus Christ, that the, the true end of the law was found in Christ. He says, The law was added about 400 years after the death of Abraham. From that continuing succession of witnesses, which we have reviewed, it may be gathered that this was not done to lead the chosen people away from Christ. Remember, Abraham had faith, and we find that in Romans 4 that Abraham had faith in Christ, actually, even though he didn't use that, that language. Um, but the law was not given 400 years later to lead people away from the faith that Abraham possessed, but rather to hold their minds in readiness until the coming of Christ, that is, until the coming of the object of their faith, even to kindle desire for him and to strengthen their expectation in order that they might not grow faint by too long a delay. So the law is actually given um, as a pointer, as a, as a directive um, toward um, the coming of Jesus. Calvin says, I understand by the word law, not only the Ten Commandments, which set forth a good, godly, and righteous rule of living, but the form of religion handed down through Moses. Um, here Calvin is differentiating between what we would call the moral law, which is um, summarized in the Ten Commandments and then expanded in other parts of the Pentateuch, and the ceremonial law, which is, of course, also found throughout the Pentateuch that has to do with the worship of Israel. So Calvin is saying, by the word law, I mean both of those things. And Moses was not made a lawgiver to wipe out the blessed promise to the race of Abraham. Rather, we see him repeatedly reminding the Jews of that freely given covenant made with their fathers of which they were heirs. It is if he were sent to renew it. It is, actually, right? As if he were sent to renew it. Uh, Moses was not establishing some radically new covenant at Sinai. He was renewing, God was renewing at Sinai, the covenant that he had made uh, with Abraham. Um, let's see, Calvin goes on and begins to focus more clearly on the ceremonies and how it is clear that the ceremonies point to Christ, to the ceremonial law. He says this fact, meaning this fact that these pointed forward to Jesus, is very clearly revealed in the ceremonies. For what is more vain or absurd than for men to offer a loathsome stench from the fat of cattle in order to reconcile themselves to God? Right? Calvin's basically saying, this is an absurd idea in and of itself, that you can um, sin and do wrong things and then burn a couple cattle and think that that makes everything okay. Right? Like, that's... That's crazy. That's crazy talk. That's not going to actually cleanse you from your sin. If the law did not point to Jesus, then it was just a radical waste of time, right? And a smelly waste of time, an expensive waste of time, um, a messy waste of time. Um, it's a loathsome stench that, to think that this in and of itself could reconcile yourself to God. Or to have recourse to the sprinkling of water and blood to cleanse away their filth, right? Remember, there were washings in the Old Testament that preceded the washing of baptism. Um, if you just thought that the water could wash away your sin, um, that, that is deeply mistaken. In short, the whole cultus of the law, taken literally and not as shadows and figures corresponding to the truth, will be utterly ridiculous. Right? It's, it's absurd. 
to think that this will give you spiritual life um, in and of itself. If the forms of the law be separated from its end, that is Christ, one must condemn it as vanity. It is simple uh, pride, it is, it is powerless, it does nothing. Um, he goes on to say that we must here note in passing that the kingdom finally established within the family of David is a part of the law and contained on the administration of Moses. From this it follows that both among the whole tribe of Levi and among the posterity of David, Christ was set before the eyes of the ancient folk as in a double mirror. So here Calvin is pointing forward um, to the idea that, that Christ is revealed in the law not only as priest but also as king. Um, that the giving of the kingdom uh, the, or the kingship was a part of the law itself. Um, uh, and it was meant to also point to Christ in a similar way, um, the, the establishment of the monarchy. For as I have just said, men enslaved by sin and death and polluted by their own corruption could not otherwise have been kings and priests before God. Um, obviously, David was a sinner. Obviously, Levi was a sinner. Um, they could not do this. They could not do this in and of themselves. They could not stand as kings and priests before God. Hence, Paul's statement appears to be very true, that the Jews were kept under the charge of a tutor, Galatians 3, until the seed should come for whose sake the promises have been given. For since they had not yet come to know Christ intimately, they were like children whose weakness could not yet bear the full knowledge of heavenly things. Um, so the law in the Old Testament points forward um, and shadows um, to, the, to the reality, uh, which is Christ. Any questions about that before we talk about the uses of the law, according to Calvin? All right, let's talk about the first use of the law, so to speak. And this is the one that probably most of us are most familiar with. The law renders us inexcusable, Calvin says, and drives us into despair. Anybody have this experience? You begin to read God's law, right? Um, even in his bare form in the Ten Commandments or where you, or other places where you get more details, um, it renders us inexcusable. It drives us into despair. If it is true that in the law we are taught the perfection of righteousness, this also follows. The complete observance of the law is perfect righteousness before God. By it, man would evidently be deemed and reckoned righteous before the heavenly judgment seat. Later today, we'll be talking about the final judgment. Calvin's point here is, if you could keep the law, you would be declared righteous. It is the righteousness of God is revealed in his law. Um, that is why Moses, after he had published the law, did not hesitate to call heaven and earth the witness that he had set before Israel life and death, good and evil. Right? He set before them these things. We cannot gainsay that the reward of eternal salvation awaits complete obedience to the law, as the Lord has promised. And of course, this raises the question, if we cannot keep the law, how then will we be saved? And the, the answer is, through the one who keeps it for us. On the other hand, it behooves us to examine whether we fulfill that obedience. Do we actually obey the law, through whose merit we ought to derive assurance of that reward? At this point, the feebleness of the law shows itself, because observance of the law is found in none of us. We are excluded from the promises of life and fall back into the mere curse. So for Calvin, this is the way in which the law is a curse to us. The law in and of itself, outside of Christ, outside of the way of salvation, is nothing but a curse to us. This is why Paul calls it that um, in and of itself, because it only condemns us of our sin. 
Um, doesn't mean we should stop there, but it is true that the law in some sense, in a limited sense, is a curse. Um, the severity of the law, Calvin says, takes from us all self-deception. This is really important. Um, that, that we are, Calvin would say, we talked about this earlier, in our sin. Um, we, what do we believe most easily? When other people praise us or when other people criticize us? When other people praise us, right? We're deluded. We like to hear good things about ourselves, right? Um, this is part of the vanity of sin. The law pulls no punches, right? The law does not flatter us. Um, the law shows God's righteousness, that is, the righteousness alone acceptable to God. And as such, it warns, informs, convicts, and lastly condemns every man of his own unrighteousness. For man, blinded and drunk with self-love, must be compelled to know and to confess his own feebleness and impurity. Right? In our own self, we are blind and drunk with self-love. Um, we are blind to these things. We must be compelled to know and to confess even the fact that we are feeble and impure. Uh, we would not even acknowledge that in and of ourselves. If man is not clearly convinced of his own vanity, he is puffed up with insane confidence in his own mental powers and can never be induced to recognize their slenderness as long as he measures them by a measure of his own choice. But as soon as he begins to compare his powers with the difficulty of the law, he has something to diminish his bravado, right? In and of ourselves, we have this false swagger, this false bravado. But when we see God's law, we realize how far we come short of it. For however remarkable an opinion of his own powers he formerly held, the man soon feels that they are panting under so heavy a weight as to stagger and totter and finally even to fall down and faint away. Thus man, schooled in the law, sloughs off the arrogance that previously blinded him. Um, so one of the roles of the law is not only to convict us, but also to open our eyes so that we see our sin, um, that, this, that, that, it, that it gives us true insight, true knowledge. Remember for Calvin, going back to the beginning, knowledge of self and knowledge of God are connected to one another, and we cannot know God um, truly, rightly, unless we also know ourselves. And the law has a fundamental role to play in true knowledge of self because it reveals our sin. Uh, likewise, man needs to be cured of another disease, that of pride, with which we have said that he is sick. So long as he is permitted to stand upon his own judgment, he passes off hypocrisy as righteousness. Pleased with this, he is aroused against God's grace by a know-not-what, counterfeit acts of righteousness. But after he is compelled to weigh his life in the scales of the law, lying, laying aside all that presumption of fictitious righteousness, he discovers that he is in a long way from holiness and is in fact teeming with the multitude of vices with which he previously thought himself undefiled. Now, of course, this is the great danger of hypocrisy, right? The great danger of hypocrisy is that you think you are righteous, that you have things together. This is why the Pharisees were so blinded at the time of Jesus, because they were convinced of their own righteousness. Um, I think anyone who has walked uh, with Christ for a number of years, um, when you first come to Jesus, when you first grow in awareness of your sin, um, you only understand it a little bit, really. You have some basic knowledge, um, but as the years go by, um, you don't realize your sin less, you actually realize it more. It may be that you're sinning less. Hopefully that's the case. 
but your knowledge of it increases, right? It's not that you were um, sinning less when you were younger. It's just that you didn't realize it. You didn't understand um, all of your sin. You thought it was just fine. Um, but as you grow in knowledge of Christ, as you grow in knowledge of the law of God, you discover that you are worse sinner than you thought you were, um, even as the years go by. Calvin says the punitive function of the law does not diminish its worth. This is an essential part of what the law is meant to do. The law, according to Calvin, is like a mirror. In it, we contemplate our weakness, then the iniquity rising from this weakness, and finally the curse coming from both, just as a mirror shows us the spots on our face. So the law is like a mirror. This is a great image when you're thinking of the different uses of the law. Um, this is a good image for the first use. The first use of the law is to be a mirror for our souls, <coughs> to rightly convict us um, of the places that we fall short of God's righteousness. Um, for when the capacity to follow righteousness fails him, man must be mired in sins. Um, after the sin, forthwith comes a curse. Accordingly, the greater the transgression of which the law holds us guilty, the greater the judgment to which it makes us answerable. The apostle's statement is relevant here in Romans 3. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what Paul says. Um, there he only notes its first function, which sinners as yet unregenerate experience. Um, so this is largely the role we experience in our unregenerate state, um, that this is actually a, a fundamental step towards uh, conversion and faith, is to acknowledge that we are sinners, and knowledge of sin comes through the law. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's keep going here, and I'll pause for questions in a minute. Thus it is clear that by our wickedness and depravity we are prevented from enjoying the blessed life set openly before us by the law. Um, so the, the law actually um, not only convicts us of our sin, it also shows us the contrast with God's grace. Um, thereby the grace of God, which nourishes us without the support of the law, becomes sweeter. And his mercy, which bestows that grace upon us, becomes more lovely. So you would think that if the law is just telling you how sinful you are and helping you grow in that reality and that knowledge, it might just be depressing and, and sad. But Calvin would say, no. Actually, it is when we fully understand the extent of our sin that the grace of God becomes sweet. His mercy becomes more lovely as we understand better our own unrighteousness. From this, that is from the conviction we experience through the law, we learn that God never tires in repeatedly benefiting us and in heaping new gifts upon us. Um, the wickedness and condemnation of us all are sealed by the testimony of the law. This is an essential point. Yet this is not done to cause us to fall down in despair or completely discouraged to rush headlong over the brink, provided we duly profit by the testimony of the law. It is true that in this way the wicked are terrified, but because of their obstinacy of heart. For the children of God, know the, for the, children of God the knowledge of the law should have another purpose. Dismissing the stupid opinion of their own strength, they come to realize that they stand and are upheld by God's hand alone, that naked and empty-handed they flee to his mercy, repose entirely in it, hide deep within it, and seize upon it alone, righteousness and merit. So it is only as we understand fully our own unrighteousness through the law that we will fully look to God for those things, look to God for our salvation, um, realize that the whole of our salvation comes from God. 
For God's mercy is revealed in Christ to all who seek and wait upon it with true faith. Um, in the precepts of the law, God is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness, which all of us lack, and conversely the severe judge of evil deeds. But in Christ, his face shines, full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. It's a wonderful line. It's a wonderful uh, way to express the way that God's uh, love is manifest to us. In Christ, the face of God shines. The face of the Father shines, we might say, full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. And remember that it is in Christ that God is most fully revealed. No one has seen God, uh, but God, um, who is at the very side, he is at the very side of God, he has made him known, as John says. So that's the first function of the law. Any questions about that first use of the law before we begin to unpack some of the other functions? Yes, ma'am. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. That's that I think that probably varies to some extent from person to person. Um, that that I think what Calvin would say is that there is a, that all of us are fundamentally deluded about our own um, uh, righteousness, our own uh, perfection. And that's just a fundamental human condition. And so um, certainly um, I know what you mean, that, that we can obsess over criticism, but I think Calvin would say even that would be potentially um, a, a, a way of revealing our pride, our, how enslaved we are to the opinion of others, um, that even, even the way that you know, many of us are, are tempted to sort of live for affirmation from other people is actually a sign of our delusion, of our, of our, um, yeah, of our blindness. So... That, I guess that's what I would say to that. Yeah. Yes, Todd. No, he wouldn't say that. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Calvin, when he's speaking of the law, is not necessarily speaking of the whole Old Testament covenant um, system, um, the story of redemption in the Old Testament. He's speaking specifically about the the command, the prohibitions of the law of God, or the requirements of God's law. Yeah. That's true. I think that's fair, a, a good clarification. Yeah, Calvin would certainly say that the giving of the law, the whole covenant um, story in the Old Testament is fundamentally gracious, and, and that's a way that actually points to Jesus, certainly. All right, let's look at the second and third functions of the law here. Um, the second one is, is pretty brief. Um, the second function of the law, Calvin says, um, is to be a protection of the community from unjust men. So this is more we might call the, the, 
the civil use of the law, the governmental use of the law, um, the broader society. The second function of the law is this, Calvin says, at least by fear of punishment to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right unless compelled by hearing the dire threats in the law. Um, so this is basically what it's, Calvin's saying, is that, that there are some, um, and this gets back to what we talked about last week, about how there is such a thing as common grace, how total depravity does not mean that, that everyone is as bad as they would be um, without God's mercy, that God is actually merciful to all men and that he restrains wickedness in all people, um, even in those that he does not save or cleanse um, from their corruption of their sin. He does restrain the wickedness. His common grace is universal in that way. Um, so we would say that, Calvin would say that the second function of the law is, is a means by which God, one of the means by which God exercises that common grace. That it actually can frighten men into not doing things that are sinful uh, because of their fear of consequences. Um, they are restrained, Calvin says, not because their inner mind is stirred or affected, but because being bridled, so to speak, they keep their hands from outward activity and hold inside the depravity that otherwise they would have wantonly indulged. Um, this constrained and forced righteousness is necessary for the public community of men, for whose tranquility the Lord herein provided when he took care that everything to be not tumultuously confounded. Um, so Calvin might say that, that a man might comprehend murdering someone else in their heart they might even make plans to do that, but then they say, well, if I murder him, I'll be caught, and then I'll go to jail, or I'll be executed, or whatever punishment will happen to me, I won't do that. Or a man might comprehend adultery and decide, well, I, I want to commit adultery, but I won't, because the consequences, the risks are too great. And so Calvin would say, um, this, this is a way in which the law of God actually restrains us in a sort of civil and common way. Um, and I don't want to make too much of it, but this is one of the the uses of the law. Um, for Calvin, though, the, the primary use of the law, um, the third and principal use, um, he says, um, is for believers. In this section, even believers have need of the law. Um, the first two uses of the law are primarily for us, for, for unregenerate people, or for people who are being prepared for conversion. But for Calvin, the use of the law did not fade away after regeneration, after conversion. Um, even believers have need of the law. And again, this is a way that Calvin really differentiated himself from the more radical Anabaptists of the Reformation and even from the Lutheran uh, church at the time. Um, he and Luther disagreed on this point. Luther would not <coughs> have articulated a third use of the law in this way. But Calvin says the third and principal use of the law, which pertains more closely to the proper purpose of the law, finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. For even though they have the law written and engraved upon their hearts by the finger of God, that is, have been so moved and quickened through the directing of the Spirit that they long to obey God, they still profit by the law in two ways. Here is the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly. Each day, here that is the law meaning, is the best instrument for them to learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and to confirm them in the understanding of it. It is as if some servant already prepared with all earnestness of heart to commend himself to his master must search out and observe his master's ways more carefully in order to conform and accommodate himself to them 
and not one of us may escape from this necessity. Calvin would say, and I would say, you know, one of the questions I get sometimes is, well, what, what does God want me to do? Um, you know, what is God's will for my life? What, you know, where, what path should I go? And, and we would say, I would say, it's revealed to you in the scriptures, right? That the law of God is actually where you should go to look for the will of God. Um, the, you should not, um, you know, try to discern what is righteous on your own. You should look to where God has actually revealed it to you which is in his law. His law is not, there's not some bait and switch in the law where the law is just there to, um, to punish you. The law is actually the way, the place where God's character is mercifully revealed unto us. Now in our sin, it is a curse because we can't follow it, we can't keep it, um, but it is still the place where God's nature, where God's will is revealed clearly to us um, in, in the moral law. Uh, and this is, this is a use for believers um, who have the Spirit of God in their hearts. Um, Calvin says, No man has heretofore attained to such wisdom, that is, um, God's desire, God's will, as to be unable from the daily instruction of the law to make fresh progress toward a pure knowledge of the divine will. So Calvin would say, um, we need to study the law, we need to go back to it again and again on a daily basis that we might more fully understand the nature of God, who God is, what what he is like, um, what his righteousness requires that we may think we understand, but as we go deeper and deeper into the law of God, we will understand more and more and more. None of us has attained such wisdom that we don't need the instruction of the law to understand the nature of God. Again, because we need not only teaching but also exhortation, the servant of God will also avail himself of this benefit of the law by frequent meditation upon it to be aroused to obedience, be strengthened in it, and be drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. In this way, the saints must press on, for however eagerly they may, in accordance with the Spirit, strive towards God's righteousness, the listless flesh always so burdens them that they do not proceed with due readiness. The law is to the flesh like a whip to an idle and balky ass to arouse it to work. Even for a spiritual man not yet free of the weight of the flesh, the law remains a constant sting that will not let him stand still. So the law, and even as we compare ourselves to the law as believers, is a constant motiv- motivating force for us to grow in righteousness, to conform our lives more and more to the law of God. Um, that remains uh, the goal to which we are called, though now we attain that goal by the power of the Spirit, not our own effort. Uh, doubtless, David was referring to this use of the law when he sang the praises of the law. Remember the Psalms, right? The Psalms are full of this kind of language. Um, Calvin's singing of the, the, the goodness of God's law in ways that often for us as modern evangelicals who have many times put aside God's law and don't study God's law, um, confusing for us. We don't necessarily see this easily, but this is how David speaks of it. He says, The law of the Lord is spotless, converting souls. The righteous acts of the Lord are right, rejoicing hearts. The precept of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The word, thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, and innumerable other sayings in the same psalm. Here the prophet proclaims the great usefulness of the law, the prophet meaning David. The, law, the Lord instructs by the reading of it those whom he inwardly instills with the readiness to obey. Um, so the Lord um, gives us a readiness to obey, and he also gives us instruction in terms of what to do, by the means of the law, that he has, he's already revealed himself there. He has shown who he is. 
um, he not only, this is the man that the Lord has um, uh, given his spirit to, lays not hold, hold not only of the precepts, but the accompanying promise of grace, which alone sweetens what is bitter. For what would be less lovable than the law if with importuning and threatening alone it troubled souls through fear and distressed them through fright? If all the law does for us is convict us of our sin, Calvin says, then why would David rejoice in it the way that he does? Um, why would it be spoken of in such positive terms? David especially shows that in the law he apprehended the mediator. I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about. That in the law of God, in the moral instruction that the Lord gives us, we apprehend the mediator. Who is the mediator? Jesus, right? We actually see Christ in the law, without whom there is no delight or sweetness. Um, Calvin says, whoever wants to do away with the law entirely for the faithful understands it falsely. Certain ignorant persons not understanding this distinction, that is, the distinction of the law's value, um, the third use of the law, rashly cast out the whole of Moses and bid farewell to the two tables of the law. And here Calvin is not speaking hypotheticals. He's talking about real people. Even today, I don't know if any of you follow Andy Stanley, who's a a popular evangelical preacher in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, very, I think his father's Charles Stanley, I guess. Anyway, Andy Stanley recently came out and said, uh, the Ten Commandments are irrelevant. Um, Jesus has told us the law. The law is to love your neighbor, and that is the, that's the only law we need to worry about. The Ten Commandments now can be swept away. This is not some thing that's out there in some hypothetical way. There, there are Christian teachers today saying even this, that... Um, that we should cast out the whole of Moses, we should bid farewell to the two tables of the law. Calvin calls that ignorance. Um, Calvin says, banish this wicked thought from our minds. This is wickedness um, to, to put away part of the law of God. Um, um, this is not something that we should do. If no one can deny that a perfect pattern of righteousness stands forth in the law, either we need no rule to live rightly or justly, or it is forbidden to depart from the law. Right? If the law gives us a perfect pattern of righteousness and of God's will and his intention for humanity, why in the world would we cast it away? That is basically what Calvin is saying. How could we say that is useless? There are not many rules, but one everlasting and unchangeable rule to live by. For this reason, we are not to refer solely to one age, David's statement that the life of a righteous man is a continual meditation upon the law, for this is just I'm sorry, for it is just as applicable to every age, even to the end of the world. I'll end there this morning. Um, but that is interesting, right? Psalm 1, blesses the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. And Calvin is saying this is not something that is just for Old Testament believers. And it's not only talking about the scriptures as a whole, it's also talking about the law. It's talking about Leviticus. It's talking about Numbers. It's talking about Deuteronomy. Right? It's talking about the latter parts of Exodus that nobody reads. Right? This, is, this is the law of God. This is a place where um, God is truly revealed to us. Even the mediator himself is shown to us in the law of God. Yes, Jeremy. Sure. 
Yeah, and exactly. And that's, that's, that's the problem, I think, with some of these teachers that say, well, we just need to follow the law that is love your neighbor. Well, how do we love our neighbor? Right? That becomes the real question. I mean, that's, that's a pretty broad thing to say, right? And Jesus wasn't saying it um, in some uh, contextless way, right? He was saying it within the context of the Old Testament law, which specified in great deal how to love your neighbor. Um, Jesus never intended how to love our neighbor just to be left up to our own hearts or somehow the Spirit is going to guide us into infallibly what we should do um, to love our neighbor. No, he's loving our neighbors always in the context of the overall commandments of God. Yes, sir, Ben. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, that's good. That's a good clarification. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't know. That it may be that Melanchthon had some tendencies in this direction as well. Yeah, I think if you read Luther closely, it'd be hard pressed to find this kind of affirmation of the value of the law for the believer. But yeah, it, it, sometimes yeah, we have to distinguish between the the originators of movements and those that follow after them. Yeah. So maybe and Melanchthon and Calvin were pretty close in some ways. Melanchthon, if you don't know, was was one of the primary students of Luther, Martin Luther. Yes, Carrie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question that I would have. I mean, I think his argument would be that that the Spirit um, will impress upon our hearts what it means to love our neighbor. We just need to follow the law of love. But yeah, I think it's so deeply misguided and opens. Oh yeah. Right, sure. Yeah, you can fill you can fill that with whatever meaning you want, basically. Yeah. One more, and then we'll close. Yes, Jeremy. There's, there's no question that the modern Western church is largely ignorant of the Old Testament, um, that we, the emphasis is largely on the New Testament um, in a very exclusionary way. And I don't think there's any question that it's part of why the Western church today has been denuded of much of its ethical and moral life. Um, and, and that is a, one of our great weaknesses. And that's part of why I'm committed as your pastor to preaching through the Old Testament. It's part of why we're doing the Psalms every summer for three months. It's part of, you know, I just preached through Genesis 1 to 3 last year for about six or eight months. Um, I want us to, we're going to be in the Old Testament. And I, I know that that's, you know, there's some extent that's unusual today, but we need it. We need the law of God um, to instruct us in who God is. So. All right, let's, um, let's stand and pray. Father, we're thankful for um, your, your care for us. We're thankful for the way that you give us your law, um, that in the law you are indeed apprehended rightly. 
Um, Father, help us um, uh, to love your law for all that it does, for the ways that it convicts us of our sin, uh, for the ways that it displays your mercy and grace to us in our sin, um, for the ways that it restrains wickedness in the world around us, and Father, especially for the way that it gives us now a direction and a way, uh, a path for us to walk. Uh, you have not left us to uh, discern what love is, Father. You have shown it to us, um, not only in the commandments and prohibitions of your law, but also, of course, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment and end of all these things. We thank you for that and pray it in Christ's name. Amen.